Welcome into this edition of the Golf Central Podcast, presented by Callaway Golf. I'm Lav, soon to be joined by Rex, who, like most people who spend a week in New Orleans, is not feeling his best at the moment. Apologies in advance for how Rex sounds. Uh, hopefully, he heaps, keeps his hacking uh, to a minimum. We'll get into why he doesn't feel well, in particular, what he did and didn't eat while in NOLA. We'll also talk about the winning team at the Zurich Classic. That, of course, was Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley. We'll also talk about Phil Mickelson resurfacing, or at least his agent resurfacing. Tiger Woods is listed in the field for the PGA Championship. What that does and doesn't mean. And we'll also touch on Greg Norman getting embarrassingly rejected as a player. while also trying to make sense of how he has done as the face for the first live golf event, which is upcoming in June, the deadline to register for the London event has now passed and we'll get into all of that. But first Callaway's rogue ST drivers are their fastest, most stable drivers ever with four head shapes to fit every type of player. Their industry leading innovations include an all new tungsten speed cartridge for increased speed, stability and forgiveness. The jailbreak speed frame also provides stability for even more speed across the face. And an AI-designed flash face promotes lower spin and increased forgiveness. These drivers are winning on tour, including for Xander Shoffley at the Zurich Classic on Sunday. Go to CallawayGolf.com now to find the driver for you. Rex, that was the first stumble I've had on a, on a sponsor read in a couple of months. You're not feeling your best. I'm stumbling on the pod read. What the hell's going on out there? We got to play hurt, man. I'm telling you right now, uh, the mute button is going to be my friend. I've always I already had to mute out so you guys didn't hear the hacking. It is, uh, it is not COVID, I can tell you that. I've been tested twice on Sunday in New Orleans before I left, and then yesterday when I got home, I, I went and got tested again. So it's just a really, really bad head cold, and I'm taking a lot of medicine, so this will be fun. Let's, get, let's do this. Sounded, I've over, sounded over-medicated. Uh, yeah, it's a head cold, so you know it's there. How how nervous were you flying home yesterday? Because clearly people had to be looking at you. You got glazed. You got glazed eyes. I mean, you look a little sickly. <laughs> you had you had four masks on. I mean, were you a little apprehensive about flying? I was very apprehensive. Again, I took a test on on Sunday, even before I went to the golf course, because I, obviously I don't want to get any of my coworkers uh, infected with COVID or anything else for that matter. And so when it came back negative, but I was still worried about flying and being in an Uber and everything else being in an airport. So I had already decided I was going to wear the mask. I was a little uncomfortable because I think you texted me. I was, it's like a scarlet letter. You're just walking yeah, around. It is. The scarlet, scarlet letter C, or at just least a big like C. You like have the C in quotes if you're still like pending test results. Yes, yes. And, and as far as the other stuff goes, like the, the glossy eyes and looking tired, I think that's everyone in New Orleans airport, at least on a Monday morning. Like like I just, yeah, like I just fit Vegas. In. I fit in perfectly i will say this there's still about i don't know put a number on it i don't know 10 percent, 15 percent of folks who wear masks in airports so i didn't feel completely uh, uncomfortable but that's i it? get it for everyone else not that's for me, it just in case really? you, yep oh my i didn't i didn't know that. i figured that i figured the results would be higher i'm leaving on wednesday uh to go to the exumas with my entire family had to go take uh another another pcr test like an antigen test because these international restrictions are still absolutely ridiculous. My three-year-old had to get uh, nasal swabbed. Uh, I told him it was going to tickle and that he's going to laugh. And so when you lied to him, when no, when the doctor shoved the nasal swab up there, he literally starts going, (laughs) 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 Uh, I'm not sure if he meant it or not, but he did not cry. Uh, So that's all, that's all that matters. Uh, I hope, I hope this illness that you've been suffering did not affect uh, the, the food output that you were able to produce in New Orleans. Tell me, tell me I'm wrong. It did not. Uh, I woke up Sunday morning not feeling great. So by that time, I'd already sort of done all the damage I could possibly do. And then after you and I did Rider's Block on Sunday night, and, and you, you got on me about uh, the idea that I hadn't touched a couple of the bases, including oysters, which I had. Think, thankfully, I mean, the Dragos. No, I said, I said barbecue shrimp, which was the unforgivable uh, sin. That, that's true. Uh, and we actually ate at a restaurant right across the street from Pascal Manalis, which is was even probably worse. But I, I felt terrible when I got back to my hotel. But I, I did walk, I don't know, I'm going to say four, five, six blocks 
to, to Johnny's Po' Boys, and I got me a Po' Boy. I got me a fully dressed uh, roast beef with a debris. Oh, so good. That is, that is, that is, that is dedication, just dragging your, your limp corpse all the way over to the Po' Boy shop to make sure that you could – to make sure that you could get your fill. I, bet, I believe that was your number one restaurant, wasn't it, in New Orleans? It, not the number one. It was among my top five, though. I did not have uh, 12 in my top five, so I just had a, I had a pure top five. But was yes, Galatoire, was, was Galatoire's your number one? Yes. That's right. Galatoire's. Uh, Pascal Manali's was in my top five, and I didn't make it there. So, yes, I was guilty of that. But sometimes you want to branch out, man. Sometimes you want to branch out. Sometimes you want to hit. You want to you want to play all the you want to play all the hits. Uh, I'm glad you had a good week there. We did actually have, I would say, a pretty good a pretty good Sunday. I think you and I have talked about the tweaks that we would make uh, to this golf tournament to make it a little bit more exciting. But at least we had uh, some of the headliners uh, win the tournament with Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantlay uh, combined to shatter tournament scoring records. Shot 29 at a par, ended up winning by two shots over one of the other uh, headlining teams. Uh, with Louisiana native Sam Burns and Billy Horschel has been playing some good golf in 2022. You had the honor and the privilege of interviewing those wire to wire champions all week at TPC Louisiana. Five days. What was your, what was Five your days straight. Uh, that was more difficult than what I'm going through right now. All the shivers, all the aches, all the pains, all, all the, everything that's going into it, the sweats, the night sweats, laying in bed, tossing and turning. You're wearing, you're wearing, a, so people, this is, this is not a visual medium. You were wearing a hooded sweatshirt. My, my Apple watch says it is 87 degrees. I, I live in Ponte Vedra. It's about uh, an hour and a half from where you live in central Florida. You should so it's be probably hotter. 90 degrees. Right. It, right it should, no. it, exactly. It should, it should be hotter. I'm a couple miles from the ocean. What on earth are you? And you're outside. And I still haven't been a chill. Sweater, wearing a hooded sweatshirt outside. Yes, and all of those things combined it were not as bad as having to interview Xander and Patrick for five consecutive oh, days. come Did, on. They're not that bad. Uh, you know what? They weren't on Sunday. Actually, I think they, they let the guard down a little bit. I, I think it's funny, these two robots. And, and I, I say that with, with all kinds of – with just a monsoon of respect because they are. They're, they're very much robots. They're very much – go about their business. You can see why they're such good friends. There's not a lot of nonsense going on there. There's not a lot of hyperbole going on there. You don't see a lot of celebrations. I don't even think you see fist pumps. I I went back and and revisited the story. Like they didn't even congratulate each other. Like they would very rarely give fist pumps after a birdie. It was just like, "Eh, that's kind of what we're supposed to do. Well, and even someone tweeted me last night or Sunday night when I was uh, leaving the golf course saying that, that this is the first champions they remember that did not celebrate on stage with the band. And I'm like, well, of course not. I mean, those robots don't do that. Like, I'm sorry to say it, and maybe they should have, but that's not what they do. We both know this pairing. I went back and and read a story from last year's Ryder Cup about those two and and how they kind of came about starting at the 2019 President's Cup. And even in good times. Did you write that story? I did. And even in good times, there's not, there's just a look, the way Xander described it. And he goes, I I just give him a look. Like, if he makes a big birdie putt or hits a good drive, I just give him a look. Like, that's the extent of the celebration and there's nothing but wires and circuits and, and everything else inside. And they're going to go about business and they're going to do it very methodically. And there's a reason why Patrick Cantlay's nickname is Sheldon. Like when you look at what he does on the golf course, it's, it's very mechanical and it's amazing to watch. And I'm a huge fan to interview them for five consecutive days was absolutely painful. And I'm sure if, if both of them were on right now, and on the Zoom meeting, they would say the same thing. Like, oh, God, talking to him for five days was just painful. Because they don't want to say anything. I don't have anything interesting to ask, apparently. It, it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> it, is, it is funny. I've actually, talked to, I've actually talked to Patrick about this because he, it does look like kind of a, a joyless pursuit when he's out on the golf course. And, and, and I think in a lot of ways he has the perfect temperament for golf where he doesn't get too high and too low. I think from a fan perspective, a lot of people have trouble – kind of connecting with him because he is just so emotionless. But when, when I've, when I've talked to him about this, he says, I actually get intense, incredible satisfaction and joy from a bogey free round. Now you and I get satisfaction and joy from birdies. We get uh, intense satisfaction and joy from maybe some hero shots that we can somehow pull off, but no Patrick Cantley derives that joy and satisfaction from bogey free rounds that is like the perfect summation of who he is as a player he's not flashy uh he is not dynamic uh he's not particularly exciting uh but he is efficient he is ruthless uh and that i think is what you saw over at tpc louisiana and the fact that they won this golf tournament 
was not a surprise. You put those two together, it, they're, they're two of the most complete players uh, on the PGA Tour. Cantlay, I believe, is seventh uh, on tour strokes gain total. Shoffley is 17th. So they literally do everything well across the board. And when you put them together, that makes for a formidable duo. Now, you and I had a pretty spirited debate on writer's block, if uh, those listening uh, did not see that. Uh, I believe you posed the question of, are, is, is those two players, Cantlay and Shoffley, kind of this generation's most feared uh, partnership? I said no. You said yes. Defend, defend your position. And have, and have you changed your position 48 hours later? Uh, no, absolutely not. And I'll, I will say that, to be fair, that when Patrick is engaged about something he's interested in, I think you said Monday through Wednesday, whenever you talk to him, whenever he's not sort of in that tournament mode, we have seen him be brilliant. We've seen him be thoughtful and, and sort of be able to, to break down the layers of very, very complicated issues on tour. He's now on the, on the pack and he enjoys that. And so that's, this isn't to say that there's no depth there because there is absolutely. There is. He's just, he's just like too, I, I liken it to him being too locked in during tournament play. So when he signs his card and you go and you get him in the quick quotes area, literally like it's literally three to five minutes after he just finished out on 18. Like he's too amped up. He's too, he's too focused. He's too, um, his mind is still too occupied on the task at hand that he, he can't, he can't kind of decompress in time in order to give a thoughtful interview. So he's very, he's very quick and wants to get it over with as quick as possible. And I think that's just the way he's wired. And that's after a good round or a bad round. He shoots 66 or he shoots 76. It doesn't matter. Exactly the same. Yep. Yes. It's going to be the exact same. Uh, And to go back to your original question, I guess it was my question from Sunday's writer's block. And and are they the most feared American duo? I went so far as saying they're the most feared duo in sports right now for the reasons you just pointed out. And again, I'll go back to the column that I wrote at Whistling Straits last year and how how this all kind of came about. It was Tiger Woods at the 2019 President's Cup who put them together at the urging of Freddie Couples, the way Freddie sort of decided, described it. Tiger doesn't need a lot of pushing, but in this particular case, he needed to be convinced a little bit. And I only make that argument because they have been the most imposing American duo, duo in the alternate shot format, which is the American side's Achilles heel. It has been for my entire career, covering the Ryder Cup, covering the President's Cup. It's just a format that the Americans just don't play very well. And they have started their career 4-0. They went 2-0 at the President's Cup, 2-0 last year at the Ryder Cup in that particular format. And I think that has to be so intimidating if you're Henrik Stinson or if you're Trevor Emelin for this year's President's Cup. Looking ahead, that it's obvious those two are going to be together. And I can't come up with a duo you can put against them that I would be willing to be like, oh, yeah, they could beat that, those two. I, I don't think that duo exists. Yeah, like if you're, if you're Davis Love, the U.S. captain for the President's Cup this year, or your Zach Johnson, the Ryder Cup captain for 2023. Like, it's just a ready-made pairing. You can count on them to get at least two points. And so, like, you can start focusing on other things. Like, they are good to go. They're a package deal. They want to play with each other. They play well together. Just just go off and, and let them do their own thing. For that question, I deferred to Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, the the magic that they have shown over their career, the friendship that they have uh, sown over the past two decades. And quite frankly, they're just a little bit more accustomed to that world stage. Jordan Spieth, three-time major champion, Justin Thomas, uh, a major champion back in 2017 at Quail Hollow, uh, ironically enough. And that's kind of where I wanted to go with this discussion, Rex, because Xander Schauffele to me is such a fascinating player on the world stage. He is a, he's a phenomenal talent. I think all of his peers recognize that certainly us in the media recognize that like his metrics are unbelievable, especially for a player of his stature. I mean, he's not a, he's not a big dude. He's basically our size uh, and he can absolutely hammer the golf ball. He is factored in every, every major championship. He is starting the big stage, including the president's cup, and the Ryder cup. If we talked about, he's basically lived in the top 10, of the world ranking for the past couple of years. And yet this is one of the most bizarre resumes of any top player. I think I've ever seen. So he was credited with a victory at the Zurich classic, even though of course he, he shared the load with Cantlay. So he has five wins now on the PGA tour, those five wins. And I'm going to rifle through them quickly here. 
2017 Greenbrier, that was his breakthrough on the PJ Tour. That's one of the weakest uh, non-opposite field uh, events of a season. It is now uh, no longer on the schedule. 2017 Wolf. Tour Championship, obviously 30 best players of the tour year. But then again, it is only 30 players. The 2018 WGC HSBC Champions, another event that is now off the schedule, limited field, kind of an eclectic mix of international players. The 2019 Century Tournament Champions, winners only field, of course, so it's stout players. And yet it's the first event of the year. It's a pseudo vacation for a lot of those guys. Short field. And now he has his Zurich Classic, which he teamed up to win with the fourth ranked player in the world. Now we should note, and we would be remiss if we did not note that he did win the gold medal at the Olympics against, you guessed it, uh, another limited field. And he did have the lowest 72 hole score at the 2020 tour championship, even though he was not credited with an official win because of that staggered start. I mean, this is truly strange stuff. What conclusion can you draw from this? If anything, because his wins have come against either limited fields, weak fields, weird field, like, like weird opponents. What's going on here? Why does he have such a strange resume? It is a strange resume. And when you sit and you consider the idea that since and I count the Olympics, because I felt like that was a strong enough field, at least the top half of the field. But if I you mean, there's 20, that, there's 20 good players. That's yes. Like, it, I don't think it's any different than the century tournament champions. I feel like, like when you show up at the century tournament champions, you probably feel like you need to be 20 players, but then it goes all the way back to January, 2019, which is a long time ago. And so there are these sort of inexplicable bouts that he has that you can't really explain. I had to mute because I had to cough. I was just saying, did you just, you did you just hack? I saw it all and pick up the slack at all. You just, you just, you just went hacking. I yes. saw, I saw the, I saw the, I mic. appreciate you being the good teammate though. I, no, I saw the mic yeah, flag just disappear. <clears throat> And then you were gone. I want it. I want to hear pretend that every time I hit that mute button that I'm, I'm hacking up and no, I, I, I want to hear like I want to hear the professional. Hack. I want to hear that. No. Otherwise, otherwise people are going to think you're just faking it. Uh, it's not. I think anyone who's listening to the sound of my voice right now can tell you that, Oh wow. He's in bad shape. Maybe he needs to go to bed and overmedicate and take some medication, which by the way, uh, I discovered last night that you do not mix Tylenol PM with NyQuil. Just in case anyone was curious, it seems to have the opposite effect of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I feel like those aren't mutually exclusive. Like you either take, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta kind of pick your pick your lane. Are you yes. hacking again? Uh, so are you uh, hacking yeah. again? No, no, I'm not. No, still there. Still I, I there. think my internet connection now is unstable. Apparently, sure. Yeah, sure. Sure. I think the internet connection now is unstable. When I'm hacking, you'll know. You'll see the, the mute button come up but it's a very good point and it's not as though xander has a bunch of holes in his game it's not as though you can point and go week in and week out he just doesn't putt well enough on sundays which is ironically sort of the one thing i was looking at patrick cantlay that i was talking with his swing coach jamie mulligan about this last week and on friday afternoon i wanted to ask a putting question again this is how much i think about questions when it comes to patrick cantlay because i'm trying I am trying to ask a question that's meaningful that will elicit a good I answer. Thought for it's weeks. not easy. It's, I, had it's to do, a I had to do a TV feature on him. I literally thought for weeks about what I was going to ask him. Because if you ask him the wrong question, he's going to shut down and he's going to think you're an idiot. And you don't want yes. a player of his caliber or his intelligence level to think you're an idiot. <clears throat> yeah. And so I spend all day thinking about questions. So I'm talking with Jamie Mulligan after Friday's round before I have a chance to interview him. And I said I wanted to ask a putting question because he did two rounds last week. He putted lights out, everything he looked at seemed like it was going to go in. I said, is there something I was going to ask something about being in a team setting with someone like Xander by your side that sort of frees up the putting stroke. But then if you look at it statistically, statistically for a second, even third round, he's not a bad putter. He's, he's very squarely either top of the PGA tour or it slides to middle of the pack. When you get to Saturday where it gets bad is on Sunday, he's 178 on putting average on Sunday. That's where he struggles, which I mean, I, I, don't pretend to be a psychologist, but that's got to be all about pressure. And so that's an entirely different question. Yeah. That's a different conversation and different question, which I, I am when it comes to Patrick, not qualified to ask. How about for Xander? I mean, if it does, I, I would, I would assume I'm not looking at it right now. I would assume Xander kind of falls in the same category where 
you know, he can be great for 54 holes. You get him on Sunday. He gets a little tight. Maybe he wants it too much. Maybe there's some bad breaks. Maybe someone kind of out, out duels him on the final day. And he ends up with a whole bunch of top threes and top five, which is what he's had over the past uh, three years without an individual win on the PGA tour. Probably statistically, that's a safe assumption because it's probably a combination of all those things. Because if you look at it, it's not as though he does one thing particularly bad either on a Sunday or otherwise. It's just whenever he gets in these situations, he doesn't convert as much as a player of his ilk. And I guess we can, we've probably had the same conversation about Roy McIlroy over the last I don't know, two years, but you would expect someone as good as Xander who does all the things that he does so well to be able to convert more than what he does. And he simply doesn't. Yeah. And I think it was, it was interesting too. Cause when you think about the Olympic tournament, uh, he was in the driver's seat on the 72nd hole, kind of sort of made a mess uh, of the 18th hole and needed to wedge to about five feet uh, in order to seal the gold medal. And I think Xander, I think a lot of us kind of said, Oh, this is kind of the one he needed. He's, he's certainly uh, shown an ability to come from behind, whether it was the 62, he shot at Kapalua, you know, kind of come from behind on the final day and chase down the leaders. But from that front, from that front running position, uh, he has kind of struggled. And so everyone kind of viewed uh, that Olympic gold medal as potentially kind of kickstart he needed to, to kind of be a better closer on the PJ tour. And that, that really has not happened. He has not played all that well, I would say, over the past uh, nine or ten months. In fact, uh, at the pre-tournament press conference, the Zurich Classic, uh, one of the PGA Tour uh, media officials who was moderating the press conference kind of asked him to recap his season, and he said uh, quite bluntly, there isn't much uh, for me to recap. Uh, has not played his best golf, had an opportunity to win in Phoenix, uh, as did Patrick Cantlay, and didn't get it done. So I'm curious to see uh, where Xander in particular goes from here because Cantlay has had – uh, a, a very good season, I would say, backing up that uh, 2021 PJ Tour Player of the Year campaign uh, now with a, a victory along with two playoff losses. I think you and I both, Rex, on Monday evening, received an email with the subject line, Steve Loy statement on Phil Mickelson. Steve Loy, of course, being yeah. Phil's longtime agent. I got excited. I'm not going to lie. I was sitting in the parking lot waiting to get uh, my COVID test so we could we could travel on Wednesday, I got very excited when I saw that subject line pop up and it reads that Phil, if you missed this news has registered to play in next month's PJ championship, as well as the U S open, which we already knew he has also interestingly uh, requested a release to play in the first live golf invitational event in London, June 9th through 11th. That is the week before the U S open Monday, April 25th, was the deadline for players to request a release. Now the PJ Tour has until 30 days before uh, if that, that event starts. I believe that is May 10th. PJ Tour has until May 10th to decide whether they will grant those releases. But here's what I thought was the most interesting point that was made in that statement. And kind of, I, I think the point is that is being overlooked. And it is, quote, Phil currently has no concrete plans on when and where he will play. Any actions taken are in no way a reflection of a final decision made, but rather to keep all options open. So my question to you, Rex, do you believe that is true, that he was merely putting this on uh, because he, he, he wanted to keep his options open before the, the tournament deadlines? Of course, the field list for the PGA Championship came out on Monday as well. Or do you think he actually intends to play in all three of those events? I'm trying to read between the lines with Phil Mickelson. That just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, does it not? I mean, it I, does. Yeah, that, that, that is no man's land trying to get in, in between those two ears right now. Uh, it, the only thing I think is certain is that Phil's going through the worst midlife crisis in the history of mankind. I think beyond that, you, can't, you really can't make an, an assessment. I don't think he's going to be prepared to play by the time the PGA championship rolls around. And that's just the little bit of information I get from those around him. Cause he's not spending a lot of time talking to people around him anymore. Uh, so that one I would be doubtful of. I wasn't surprised that he put his name in for the live golf event in London, simply because the, as you pointed out, the deadline was Monday to request that conflicting event release from the PGA tour. So he didn't have a choice on that front. Now why he felt like he needed to announce it. I, I'm not quite sure because by all accounts, anywhere between 15 and 20 players 
requested conflicting event releases from the PGA Tour. And I think we've only heard about two of them right now. Robert Garrigus and Sergio Garcia seems to be the other name we've heard about. If anything, it's probably Phil trying to do a make good with the folks at Live Golf after everything that happened, after the comments that he made that was in the Fire Pit Collective website. But no, I, I don't think it's any guarantee he's going to play in any three of those events or even an event this year. Oh, hi, Tito. Well, we have Rex hacking. We have Tito barking. Uh, we have the whole for good plan. Yeah, it makes for good podcast, doesn't it? Uh, the the I, deer are out I, this morning. They're, they're, they're making fun of me. Sure. Uh, I saw... Some of the headlines uh, from some of our friends over uh, at the UK, of course, the writers did not write the headlines, uh, as we all know. However, I saw the words like uh, stunning and shocking to describe Phil's uh, request to play in the first Live Golf Invitational event. And I didn't have that reaction whatsoever. I mean, you have to remember, Phil and a couple other players were drafting the operating agreement for this for this rival league. And so even though it all spectacularly blew up in his face and he's now taking an indefinite leave of absence uh, from tournament competition. It's not like he's all of a sudden kind of abandoned those dreams. You have to at least assume that there was some sort of agreement that he would play in these events, or as you put it, some sort of make good with the live golf folks. So how would that possibly be surprising or stunning to quote some of those headlines that he would play in the first event? Of course, He's going to yeah. do so, especially if he's not particularly going to be welcome back on the PJ Tour anytime soon. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I kind of thought it was obvious, and and for all the reasons that you just pointed out. I mean, it seems to me that he has gone down this path, and I don't know if he can deviate from it. He is right way now. in too deep. He is way in too yeah, deep. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a path back to the PGA Tour. I mean, certainly Monaghan left the door open when he said at the Players' Championship that there would need to be a conversation, but I don't know if Phil would be anywhere. I mean – it would take such contrition and you and I both know Phil well enough to know that he's not doing that. He's not coming back with his hat in his hand and apologizing and, and declaring to the world that I made a bad choice. And, and I want to stay with the PGA tour, particularly if, and we know this to be true as well. There are still vast amounts of money out there just waiting to be taken by anyone who has an interest. $120,000 for last place at that London event. And this is assuming, and I don't know if this is a safe assumption that there's no, no guaranteed fees that there's no payouts just for showing up which I think there's probably a safe assumption that if Phil Mickelson shows up, he's going to be getting a paycheck regardless. So all of those things add up to, I, I, I would, I'm not surprised that he put in, I mean, for no other reason than I just pointed out, he has to because of the deadline for, for the, to get his PGA tour release. The other half of this is I think whatever it is he was trying to accomplish with his comments earlier this year, he's probably having to do some backtracking. He's probably having to do some sort of apology tour, even if it's behind the scenes, whether that's with the PGA tour or that's with live golf. Cause he burned down both of those houses. And right now it seems like it's live golf. Yeah. I mean, you have to start the apology tour at some point. It's not like he's just going to disappear from, from public view for the remainder of, of his life and, and his career. Like he has to, he has to reintegrate himself with, 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 with public life. I would, I, I still think I'd be surprised if he defended his title, at the PGA championship, as you mentioned, he's shown no signs of contrition. Uh, he has not offered an apology, even his statement that he did make. And that was the last time we've heard from him in late February. There was uh, no apologetic uh, elements at all, except to potentially apologize to live golf folks for kind of uh, undermining what their greater mission was. I'm still not sure that fans are ready to accept Phil Mickelson. I think it could be an ugly scene if, if he makes his first, start back at Southern Hills uh, after three months away, after he skipped the Masters for the first time since 1994, if he is going to return. And I still think that is a big if. That is the part of the statement that is being overlooked. If, if he yeah. does come back at all, uh, I don't think it's until London, which I think is, would be more of a um, soft launching point for, for kind of his, his reintegration. I mean, but to carry the conversation forward, I guess I see where you're coming from, that, that to land back in the public eye at the PGA Championship where he's defending champion and all the questions that will be surrounding it, you would think that would not be optimal. However, landing at the Live Golf event in London with even more questions surrounding it, I'm not quite sure if that's a good landing spot either. I don't know. that there, It doesn't seem like there's any good but I But I feel like those Live Golf folks could insulate him from some of the out, 
outside criticism. He wouldn't have to do a press conference there, which he would certainly have to do as the defending champion of the PGA championship. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have to do that at all. He could just play his 54 holes as do his shotgun start, collect his at least $120,000 for finishing uh, last place or better. And then maybe he shows up the next week at Brookline. Maybe he uh, retreats back to his California state. Who knows? How do I sound? Do I sound good? I feel like this is going well. Is yeah, it going well? I feel like I feel like you sound fine. Since we since we did mention PGA Championship field, it did come out on Monday. Another name that was listed as expected mm. was Tiger Woods, since he needed to just like Phil Mickelson, he needed to uh, register for the event, keep his options open, uh, probably have yet another game time decision, just like he was at the Masters. What do you think the chances are that we actually see Tiger there, or is this just another? potential uh, kind of 11th hour decision he's going to have to make. I got to believe it's another 11th hour decision, but I was very doubtful he was going to play the Masters up until, I don't know, a week before when you and I started tracking airplanes flying from South Florida. I started tracking airplanes. Don't be, don't be throwing yourself in there. That was, that was, that was my, that was my gimmick. I believe the tip that he was going to be there or midweek came from me, if I'm not mistaken. If you go back and and then I started looking at it and then you started tracking like like an absolute lunatic. Yeah, it's like a lunatic. Um, I, I, I would have said no then, so I'm going to say no now simply because even when he kind of commented, even when he sort of addressed this at Augusta as he was leaving, it was his focus was on the Open Championship at St. Andrews, which makes tons and tons of sense, and we've talked about that. I don't know that Southern Hills is going to be as friendly as certainly St. Andrews or anywhere else he could possibly pick. It's a hilly layout, not quite as hilly as Augusta National, but it's going to be a demanding walk. And the difference is there's going to be rough there. And it's it's going to be a little bit harder on his body than what we saw at Augusta. And I'm not quite sure right now if he's – I don't know what it takes to put him back together again. And we've, we've talked about this before. Like, what does it take to get all the pieces back in together, back together again? And how much duct tape and wire and chicken wire? And what does it take to get everything – Getting out, back my together? God. Get him a – Get him a gurney. Yes, yes. And so my guess is that that's not an easy task. In the days and even weeks after Augusta, my guess is it took a lot to get him back to the starting point where they were just a week earlier. And so I don't know if he wants to do that to himself at the PGA Championship when, if you look the little bit that we know about Brookline, Brookline would seem to be an easier landing spot, right? Like as far as a golf course goes, it's relatively flat. It's not going to be quite as demanding. Uh. Yeah, it's it's going to be more demanding than Southern Hills. Uh, from from a from a golf course perspective, I would think it'd be a more difficult test. I'm yeah. just thinking more of a physical toll it's going to take on its body in this particular case, and it, maybe that's not even on the menu to be honest with you, because that wasn't brought up on Sunday at Augusta. It wasn't. Well, I'll see about the PGA. My focus on the Open, and then nothing was mentioned about the U.S. Open. So maybe that's not even a menu option at this point going forward. But it, it is encouraging. And just the fact that he felt confident enough, to, I'm just going to put my name in and we'll see how, how it plays out. But my guess is he's no closer to a decision now than he was at this point heading into the Masters. Yeah, look, we're probably taking him a little bit too literally when he commits the Open Championship and says that he's uncertain for the PGA Championship. I'm with you. I'd be, I'd be very surprised, actually, if he played in any of the next two major championships. I did not understand the discourse at all that followed the Masters when we, it was just like, oh, Tiger's back to being uh, kind of the semi- uh, semi full-time player now where he's going to show up at major championships. Oh, he's going to get a tune-up start at the Memorial. Oh, of course we're going to see him. If he didn't get enough FedEx cut points, we'll see him uh, in the playoffs. Of course, he's going to be playing in the president's cup. And you certainly have to figure that he's going to play in the hero and the PNC and all this, like there's been zero indication that that is the case. Maybe that is the goal in a couple years time when he understands his body when he gets a little bit stronger, when he's able to manage the pain a little bit more, I have no uh, suspicions whatsoever that he is going to become this part-time player in 2022. Like I don't see him playing the PGA championship. As you mentioned, he was an immense physical pain after that masters. It is reasonable to expect that he is still kind of in that recovery phase from putting himself through the torture chamber. That is Augusta national over those eight days. I think once he gets the recovery phase, then he goes into the strengthening phase and trying to get his body back in a position that he wants it, or at least gives him a better chance to compete, to compete. And then, and only then can he start actually fine tuning his game. It's, I think we were all uh, kind of watching him in amazement 
and wonder and awe that he was able to complete all 72 holes at Augusta National, giving, given the state of his body. But let's keep in mind, he also finished 23 shots back of Scotty Scheffler. He was not competitive, uh, but for basically half a round. He was kind of, kind of hovering in the mix, but I don't think anyone gave him a realistic shot to win that golfer, man. Tiger is not a ceremonial golfer. He is not showing up at these major championships just so he can wave to the crowd uh, and receive adulation uh, from them. That's not what his intentions are. I think these three months in between the Masters and the Open Championship gives him the proper amount of time to recover, to strengthen, and then fine-tune his game. He seems all in for the Open Championship at the old course, which is what I think he does. I think this is merely keeping his options open. If he has some sort of miracle cure over the next couple of days, it takes uh, next couple of weeks, it takes away some of his pain and allows him to compete at a higher level, then sure, give it a shot. Uh, but I'm a little suspicious that that will actually uh, be the case. Uh, Rex, is there anything that we didn't get into? Oh, oh, we wanted to get into Norman. Of course we wanted to get into Norman. Sure. Uh, we talked about the Live Golf event, but Greg Norman – uh, came out last week and said that he wants to play the 150th, 150th Open uh, at St. Andrews. He says, hey, uh, former two-time Open champion, 150th at the old course. Absolutely love the old course. Uh, I'm hoping they're going to give me a special exemption. Well, the RNA could not have shot that down fast enough. First of all, the... Or clear enough. Or clear enough. Or clear enough. First of all, uh, the past champions threshold is 60. Norman is 67. Norman said that he has zero intention of trying to qualify, just like uh, about half the field will be trying to get into. Oh, and, and oh, Norman seems to have forgotten that the RNA in ways that were both subtle and quite obvious uh, has been lining up behind the established tours of the PJ Tour and the DP World Tour. They removed the... Uh, exemption that they gave to the Asian tour uh, order of merit leader uh, after the live golf investment in the Asian tours. So that's kind of cutting off one potential Avenue there. They clearly are, are not, I wouldn't say pleased with uh, the recent developments and how uh, the Saudi sports washing effort has kind of unfolded here. And so, no, they said they have zero uh, I forget what the exact terminology was, Rex, but they have uh, zero um, interest in handing out any additional exemptions to this year's Open Championship. So, so Greg Norman wants to play in the 150th Open. You and I want to play in the 150th Open. Yeah. I and, we have, we, and we have just about uh, as good of an opportunity to get in as he does. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, and I want a pony. So I don't think either one of us are going to be disappointed on that. You front. could actually I get think... a pony if you wanted. You could. Um, I could. Norman, I don't know where Norman, I would Norman can't play, though. Norman, Norman can't play, you, but you can get a pony. That's true. Uh, this is the quote that the spokesperson for the RNA sent me. The entry terms and conditions for the Open stipulate that a champion must be age 60 or under or have won the championship in the previous 10 years to be exempt from qualifying. That remains the case for the 150th Open, and we have no plans for any additional no exemptions. If there's, if there's any ambiguity in there whatsoever, I challenge someone to add us or DM us because it's not going to happen. And it's just another misstep for Greg Norman. And look, our colleague at Golf Channel and the Golf Week columnist, Eamon Lynch, is, is very, very outspoken on this and very, very clear that he, whatever it is, they're trying to accomplish at Live Golf and at Sports Washington. Seems to be the obvious thing. Norman was the absolute wrong choice. And I'm not saying that it would have been better with, with someone else because it was always going to be an awkward sell to the general public, to the game stars, whatever the case may be. But Norman is despised by the players, by and large. I mean, when Roy McElroy turns up his nose at the idea that, first and foremost, it's the guy at the top that he had a problem with. Forget about everything else. Forget about the Saudi involvement. Forget about what kind of conflict it would create with the PGA Tour. Forget about what kind of impact this could have on his legacy. It, he started with Norman, and I don't think he's alone in that locker room not liking Norman for whatever reason. And my guess is he seems to be a raging narcissist based on everything that, that we've seen. And certainly the 30 for 30 that just came out on ESPN. Both then and week. now. I mean, Norman was Both despised by his peers back in the 80s and the 90s. So nothing nothing's changed over the past 25 years. 
<laughs> it's difficult when you are uh, despised across generations. That doesn't happen very often. Usually, no, you soften. That seems, right? Yeah, that seems like you would have some self reflection and, and want to and want to potentially change. Uh, but that does not uh, that is not what narcissists do. No, and so I, I think he is the, the absolute wrong person for the job. I'm not quite sure who the right person would be, but it's staggering to think how many mistakes he has made along the way and miscalculations, and he just continues to stumble, and the money just continues to pour in. And it's actually kind of frightening if you're the PGA Tour that if they'd have put someone that had more reach in golf, that could have bridged some of these divides that you see between the players who have no interest in live golf, that it could have been a, a much deeper threat than what we end up right now. And, and I think it's a very real threat. I'm pretty sure Jay Monahan did not take the private jet to New Orleans last week just to talk to Ian Poulter and Robert Garrigus, which he did that. I think he went there to talk to everyone and to make a show of it. And he's going to continue to do that because he views this as a real threat. But the idea that you could be so fumbling and so bumbling to just announce to the world that I want to play the open without even just throwing up a test balloon internally to the RNA and asking, excuse me, is there any chance this would happen whatsoever? Absolutely no. No, then I'm not going to say this because that would be embarrassing for me to do this. He has such a lack of awareness. It's frightening. How much longer will the Saudi bosses put up with his ineptitude? Because there's been missteps like from basically day one to the point where now they're, they're shelving plans for the league concept for at least two years. You have the um, issue now where uh, he, he said he doesn't really matter who shows up. Like he, he actually hopes that it's a, a nobody who makes $4 million and changes their lives and, and then is banking on the idea that these top players are going to get jealous seeing this nobody take home $4 million and want to come play his events. Like at some point the Saudis like, don't pay, don't, don't, don't play around. Like you either can do the job or you can't. How many, I wonder how uh, thin of ice he's actually skating on or how long his rope is going to be uh, to use another cliche uh, before they actually think about someone else. And like, would Phil Mickelson be a better fit for the commissioner of the live golf league? I don't think so. Cause I don't think he's that much more popular in the locker room, at least right now, the Norman is. And look, I don't know how much, how popular he was before his comments on the fire pit collective. There, there's always been a level of begrudged acceptance when it comes to Phil inside the locker room. That but he's they did have players lined up to do this until he, until he shot himself in the foot. Absolutely. And, and I just think that took it over the top. And so, no, I don't think Phil's the right answer either. Say that they do seem to have people in position who do make, decent decisions and i don't know who that is i don't know there's there's a couple of executives over there from the pga tour there's a couple of executives over there from fox sports i don't know who's making it calling the shots the idea that you just pointed out that at the end of this live golf invitational series there is going to be a player that no one's ever heard of that earns six seven million dollars and that is going to turn heads i mean that's i've talked to enough players on the range last week and beyond that will tell you that, yes, that's going to get my attention. If it's some guy that I know I can beat with one arm tied behind my back, I'm, he's going to take notice. And the other one is, and we had this conversation internally, the idea of inviting amateurs. And internally, there were some folks at our shop who sort of dismissed it as, oh, this, they're getting desperate inviting amateurs. I think that's actually one of the better ideas they've had, where if Liv Goff can tell the PGA Tour, you keep today's stars, we're going to take tomorrow's stars. We're going to take your young. And now all of a sudden you're getting kids out of college and you're not going to get them all, but you start picking them off one by one and you give them a place to play and you give them guaranteed money and you give them a place to, to make a lot of money very, very early in their careers, as opposed to losing money, which is what most top players do before they break through on the PGA tour. I think those are two actually decent ideas. Yeah. I think, I think two things can be true at once. I think they're, I think they're somewhat desperate to fill out the 48 man field. And I also think it is a good idea to kind of create this this feeder system, if you will, from the top amateur ranks into this live golf system where you, you're, you're right. If you look at the PGA Tour University rankings and the top 15 players at least get some status on either the Corn Ferry or some other PGA Tour umbrella tour, if you kind of target, let's say, if, if you can nab three of those top 15 guys, well, that's pretty good. Or if you go to the top 50 in the world ranking and you can you know, kind of steal five or seven of those guys, that's good. That's a good foundation that you could see those guys yeah. uh, potentially pairing with those has-beens that you're, that you're also kind of trying to get some cachet 
with your league, whether it's a Lee Westward, Ian Poulter, I mean, Sergio Garcia, guys who have been around the block for a long time. You need to have some sort of a mix of young, upstart, up-and-coming talent with proven veterans uh, to kind of put them uh, lightly who may not be factoring any more uh, on the world stage. I don't think that that necessarily is a bad strategy. In fact, that is probably a, a good strategy. I'm still somewhat skeptical because I've never seen a great player who is interested in only money, who would choose money over legacy. You've, you and I have had this fight uh, a couple of times. I've yet to see a historically great player who is interested in it early in their career. At this well, stage, no. if, you're, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you're Lee Westwood, you just turned 49 years old, sure. You've, you've, been, you've been grinding for 25 years. Go collect your fat paycheck. And I don't think anyone would begrudge a player of his caliber. But if you're a Colin Morikawa, if you're a Victor Hovland, guys who are 25 and under, to me, that's self-sabotage. No, and I think the conversation that we had while you were trying to put words in my mouth is my argument's always been, why do golfers have to make the distinction between money and legacy? Aaron Rodgers doesn't. LeBron James doesn't. No other professional athlete has to make the distinction between getting paid and their legacy. I don't know why golfers do. And look, I am not down for any of this. I think I've been very, very clear about Live Golf, that it is sports washing and it is the lowest form of sports. However, in this particular case, and I learned this lesson years and years ago when I was writing about contracts, is that you are worth what Shaq. someone is willing to pay you. Is this a, is this a, is this a Shaq reference? No, no, it's not a Shaq reference, but uh, although it probably it, it has its roots there now that I go back and, and I'm glad my kids aren't here because they would be yelling at me about running Shaq out of town. That's a whole other story for a different day. I told that story the other night at a dinner with a whole bunch of tour players. They thought it was hilarious. Uh, uh, but the part that gets me is you're worth what someone's willing to pay you. And in this particular case, let's take Robert Gerdes. And I don't know what he's getting paid, and I'm sure it's just he's showing up to, to, to compete for first place or last place, whatever it might be, at the Live Golf event in London. That's Robert Kirk isn't, isn't even – he's not even going to get into this field anymore. I mean, they got, they got 15 of the top uh, 100 players at least, according to Live Golf's spokesperson. Uh, yeah, that's true. And it, that, that'll create an interesting scenario as well. Um, now, some of those are, are – the way they did their criteria, there's some bleed over. So it's like top 10 off the race to device list. It's top 10 – off the, the FedEx Cup points list, whatever the case may be, there's there's going to be matchups there. But the point is, is he is worth whatever someone's willing to pay him. And in this particular case, the PGA Tour obviously is not going to pay him that much. So I'm not going to get in a position where I'm arguing for live golf or even competition, but I certainly don't understand why the conversation has to be only about choose one or the other. You can't have both because every other athlete has both. I, I agree with that. Obviously, the PGA Tour is structured differently than the NFL or the NBA is, including uh, the amount of revenue that they produce on an annual basis. You have reported, uh, and will continue to report, uh, I'm sure, about this uh, fall series that's uh, kind of tailored to patting the wallets of the top 50 players in the world. Like the tour is coming up with ways now. Were they were they were they pushed and 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 compelled to uh, do more for their star athletes? Of course they were. Uh, that is that is one of the benefits of having a viable threat uh, like the Live Golf Series. But it's not like the, the top PGA Tour players have not been uh, incredibly uh, enriched and are not fabulously wealthy because that's just that's just untrue. Well, no, but this is this is you portraying your your moralities on the other players. It's you saying, "Oh, you've made enough. Don't be greedy," and and you can't do that. Like, that's why I'm just cautioning here. You're, you're saying that, oh, you've been paid well enough. Worry about your legacy now. That's not right either. But like, the, like but, who are you to like decide the, the how, what, what's a fair a, rate? The, the Players' Championship had a $20 million purse. Every event of these eight Live Golf events has a $25 million purse. Now, $5 million of it is for the team but element. They're but nothing, but they're nothing million. They're nothing events. It's a $25 million purse. The Players' Championship seems to lean into the idea that they've got the biggest person in all of golf because it's a bidding war, and no one else wants to get involved with it anymore between the Players' Championship and the four majors. Now you have someone that actually put their money where their mouth is and said, okay, here's eight that are going to blow away your one. Again. But these tournaments are not, not even getting world ranking points. They are literally fluff events. They mean nothing towards a player's legacy. They are nothing events. There's no, there's no weight to them whatsoever there's no credibility to them they're so just, what does it matter if they go over and play them? They're, they're just fanciful <clears throat> exhibitions so what does it matter if they go over and play them 
because we all know it's not going to stop here where they probably made the biggest mistake, or maybe this is the plan all along is the next four after London are all in the United States. And then the last event, the team events going to be held in Miami at the row. The PGA tour can't allow any of those releases, any of those releases. Like it's written into the bylaws. They literally can't. They literally cannot. And they have done it before. Now there's a way to pick this apart. This is all about pushing the PGA tour against the wall and and initiating a lawsuit. Cause there is no way live golf thought for even a moment that you can have five of your eight events in the United States and the PGA tour is going to be cool with that. That was never going to happen. Couldn't this just be another yet another miscalculation from Norman? Could be (laughs) that he's banking on this. And instead, if it gets, I mean, while it's tied up in court, you're, you're just getting basically deep world tour players. You're getting corn fairy tour players. You're getting amateurs, whatever the case may be. And your, your, your venture doesn't get off the ground because no one's paying attention to a a field of, of nobodies. Uh, It absolutely could be. I, uh, my understanding is talking to people who do know a little bit about it is there's an army of lawyers on live golf side to feel like they have a very good case and all they're doing is waiting for the tour to push back and that's going to initiate the lawsuit. And I've also been told there's an army of lawyers in Ponte Vedra that like the PGA tours case. So all the, this is just getting, which would take years, but that would take, it'll it'll take take years years to settle. Yeah. Yes. So it's going to, like I said, it's going to eat up whatever's left of my sad career combing through court documents. Yay for me. (laughs) I'm a little dark today. Uh, That's okay. You're you're also very heavily medicated. Uh, We've gone, we've gone too long. Your voice is getting raspy. We still have to tape writer's block. Uh, I, I, I worry about asking what you're going to have on the grill this week. Uh, because it sounds like you're just going to be potentially putting some chicken noodle soup uh, on the pit barrel cooker. Sounds like you're just going to be shotgunning uh, some NyQuil. What, what are your yes. What are your plans for this week? You're at home before you head to Wells Fargo, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, I won't be doing anything on the grill. I, although, if if this turns around, I, I'm this will turn around. I'll be fine by Wednesday. It's when you send cold. me a Snapchat, that's right. It's a head cold. When you send me a Snapchat on Thursday of a fancy drink with an umbrella in it, I'll. I'll throw you something back. I'll be on the grill. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be drinking uh, many, many colleagues uh, chasing around my three-year-old who uh, hopefully is not scared of the water or it could be a, a very long week. Uh, Rex, get some rest. Uh, enjoy your hacking. Uh, enjoy your uh, chicken noodle soup and your NyQuil and all of the other uh, uh, medicine that your pharmacist well. has given to you thank you guys for listening to this edition of the golf central podcast presented by cowboy golf make sure to check out rex and i on writer's block which will be dropping uh wednesday on golfchannel.com. not sure who's going to be with rex uh for the sunday edition it could be brentley romine uh could be our girl Haley luke who knows uh, i look forward to seeing uh, who exactly they drum up there thank you guys for listening we'll talk to you next time